So, welcome to Wages of Cinema. I am Jack. I'm Andrew. And uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. Lots of movies. We're full of movies. We're just bursting at the seams with movie talk. That's right. And before yeah. we get to the movie talks, there's something you wanted to bring up today. That's right. Um, well, this just happened uh, literally yesterday, and it kind of blew up uh, my internet feed. And it was just something that I thought I should mention, because uh, this guy was really well-renowned, uh, and that was the very tragic passing of James Horner. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know who James Horner is, he is a composer who has done a few things here and there. A few little movies that you might have heard of, like Titanic, and Apollo 13, and Avatar. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and Aliens, also. Oh. Uh, he's done a lot, oh, and also uh, Wrath of Khan. Uh, that was probably one of the first movies. Yeah. And he, his, his resume is just huge. Oh, and um, he, uh, let me just see here at his IMDb, because he's done a lot of stuff. Lots and lots of stuff. That, you know, lots of 90s movies that we've probably watched, over, you know, years. Oh, a movie that we talked about, The Rocketeer. Oh, man, that's too yeah, bad. Yeah, The Rocketeer, uh, Braveheart. All right. Um, and yet he won two Oscars, of course, for Titanic. Because, uh, you know, yeah. I won't do Celine Dion, but, you know, he did that song. He did a lot of kids' movies. He did uh, um, An American Tale. Cool. And uh, Land Before Time. He was just all over the place with stuff, and uh, it's a very sad loss. Like, the great thing with him... I'm sorry, you wanted to say something? Well, I think composers in films are... Uh, I don't think they're necessarily underappreciated, but I think they deserve a little more recognition. I mean, uh, Ennio Morricone was, you know, the, is probably the, the most prolific composer of all time. Mm. John Williams is e easily recognizable. Uh, but there are so many people who work on movies that you don't realize uh yeah. work on movies exactly. uh, and luckily james horner i mean he clearly was somebody who you know through his talent did make you know his mark yeah in movies and composers like i mean even before they become known like they end up working on a lot of movies that you've seen like uh han zimmer yeah i think he, he did like crimson tide or something didn't yeah he? and he did the i forget he did the pirates movie yeah, and I mean, and, like, th and those are decent scores. Yeah, he has a wide range of talent. Like he, you know, like I, I guess I first knew him because he did The Lion King, and then, right. uh, and then he did, of course, The Dark Knight, and those are two kind of very different movies. Right, um, uh, but there's also Michael Giacchino who did the yes. score for The Incredibles, and he also did Cloverfield's one piece of uh, of orchestra orchestral music at the end yeah. of the you know the credits it's uh that song roar is actually a pretty good song i yeah. love it uh but um but james horner again he he did a lot of movies like if you look on his IMDb, he did like close to maybe a hundred movies i'm gonna say and music's so important to move movies it's not like you know being just like a character actor or anything or or yeah. being like a director of photography who cares about those guys? Yeah, who cares how the movie looks? I, we and, care about the movie itself. A movie, no, you need a movie without music is is ridiculous. Well, I mean, I mean, you could have a movie without music. Like, No Country for Old Men doesn't really have much music. I know, but that's that's it's an uh, exception. No, I well, that's an. I there are movies that don't have scores or don't have 
you know, music in them. It depends on what the movie needs. It depends on what the movie is kind of asking for. Right. To have well, that like Cloverfield, that didn't need a score or a soundtrack. I didn't even. It's funny you mention that because I I kind of forget that Cloverfield has a score. I mean, it was a found footage movie. Well, it, it has a it has a song over the credits. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that song is really good. Okay, I it's, get what you're saying. Yeah. What I liked about James Horner, though, like I I, I respected him. Like he wasn't. I don't know if I placed him in like Ennio Morricone, Bernard Herrmann territory. Or no, whatever. maybe not, but no, still. No, but I watched a couple of interviews, uh, you know, after he died. I went on YouTube and I just searched like James Horner's score, and I saw two things that made me suddenly go like, "Oh man, this is kind of a major loss." Just in terms of how he talks, I he did an interview about Wrath of Khan and about uh, aliens. And Wrath of Khan, it was just really insightful into how. You know, he looked at the movie and realized, okay, so I'm going to have three themes. And I'm going to kind of repeat these themes, but I'm going to do little variations on them so that people can keep track of yeah. sort of their characters. And to know that, okay, this theme goes with the hero. This theme goes with the villain. And uh, I just found that fascinating. He was really... He, and he also talked about how you know he knew that, you know, even though he actually hadn't seen Star Trek, Really, he he only seen the motion picture. He didn't watch the TV show, but he knew hmm. just from watching Wrath of Khan. Okay, my score needs to emphasize Kirk and Spock's friendship. You know, this is really about their bond. And then, you know, that of course became the main focus in Search for Spock. Right. And the fact that this friendship drives Kirk to try to find out what happened to Spock. All right, um, but the music tells the story almost as much as the as the film does. Yeah, and um, and then the other thing was with his interview with Aliens. He comes right out and says, like, this was kind of a miserable experience for me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just in the sense that, apparently on Aliens, they were really rushing to complete the movie. They had, like, the studio gave them this release date, and were like, you have to meet this release date. We can't move it. And because of that, like, James Cameron was trying to rush to finish (laughs) the movie. He ended up uh, playing the score on a kazoo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much. Well, what James said was, he told the people, he told James Cameron, the producer, like, look, you know, I need a set amount of time to do the music for this movie. If you don't give me that time, then I don't know what to do for you. You know, it's not, you know, I can come up with a theme in two minutes. That's actually the easy part. The hard part is giving the music for everyone else to do. Yeah. You know, and the funny thing is, though, they talk about how. You know, ultimately, you know, they can kind of look back in hindsight and say, like, oh, that score is great. But there was one thing where, overnight, James Horner basically did... There was a, there was a score in Aliens, and I don't know how well you remember that movie, but there's a moment where Ripley's trying to get out of the ship, and you hear, like, this music that's really intense. It's like... It's like, I can't really imitate it, but... Um, this music has been used for years and years since in trailers for action movies. Yeah. So music gets reused a lot. It does. Uh, like uh, like Requiem for a Dream. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. We don't have to do it. No, no. Keep but doing the point it. is though, uh, so James Horner, pretty big loss. He you know, you might have not loved every single movie that he just scored to. You know, maybe but that's not his fault. No, it's not his fault. I mean, he worked with a wide... I mean, frankly, I mean, he did score Apocalypto. <laughs> but there's less said about that. Again, not his fault. No, not his fault. He just came in and was like, okay, how I do my job. And, right. And, uh, 
you know, and even like, um, yeah. So I would say actually one of his last, uh, scores will be coming out this year in this, I think he did the score for this movie called Southpaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know if you saw the trailer. Yeah, I've seen the trailer for it. Yeah. So, uh, oh, and, uh, the Karate Kid. The, the original? One, oh, said. the new one? Yeah. Eh. <laughs> eh, it's not his fault, as Again. I said. All right. <laughs> so, so, James Horner. So, here's to you, James Horner. Uh, Clink. Clink. Um, here's to you, my friend. Oh, I'm not his friend, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, so. Let's get on to the two-minute movie mile. <laughs> Two triple M. All right, and as usual, Jack has watched uh, more movies than me, so he's going to talk about his first movie in two minutes or fewer. Oh yes, and I just realized I should get my phone, so let me just uh, quickly get that. Why don't you tell the audience where they can find us? Uh, you can find us on iTunes at the Wages of Cinema. You can also find us on uh, SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud.com/WagesOfCinema. Make sure you leave a comment or subscribe or do something that will help us. Yes. Come on, stop if, thinking about yourselves for a change. Yeah, exactly. And if you want to send us an email, we now have an email address. You could send an email to wagesofcinema at gmail.com. And we will read your email on the air. And, you know, tell us anything. Ask us to watch a movie. Tell us that we suck, and we'll read that. We will. We won't like it, but we will. will. <laughs> uh. So anyway, Jack... Okay. You have your first movie. You have two minutes. Ready, set, go. Oh, Jurassic World. All right, tell me about this. Because everybody I've talked about was raving about it. Really? Okay. Like well, Mad Men. Mad Men. Um, well, I should do this whole review like Ian Malcolm, but I don't have the time. Uh, I'll just have lots of ums. What we get with this movie, if you've seen the trailer, you know what's going to happen. Right. There's no surprise. It's okay. The, 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 the park is now open. We've created a new dinosaur. Probably not a good idea. Dot dot dot. Chaos ensues. Okay. Um, so what? So the movie. It's all right. That's what I would say. It's like I was talking about with our friend Macatania. You know, a lot of people try to have expectations that well, this movie is so awesome or this movie is so bad. How about a movie that's perfectly okay? How about so, the How about the actors? Um. I'd say that uh, well, Chris Pratt does pretty well with what he can. I think I liked Star Lord better uh, among like these kind of heroic lead characters. Like that, he had a little bit more sarcasm, a little bit more humor. In this, he has a little bit of that, but mostly he's just like the upstanding heroic character who knows everything that's happening. Knows that, for example, the Indominus Rex has knew that he had a tracker under his skin, so he ripped it out. Wasn't Indominus Rex in uh, in Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so uh, what about everybody, What about the rest of the cast? Um, let me just think here. Uh, Irfan Khan is really good. He plays the new John Hammond. Chris House is fine. The actors do pretty well for the kids. The kids are a little annoying. Okay. The kids are more annoying than the first Jurassic Park. Here's what I wanted to say. I miss real dinosaurs. The what? action is really good in the movie, but I was not scared by the movie. I was scared by Jurassic Park. Jurassic World, yeah, there is some cool fights. There is, you know, this is the Godzilla movie. I want to have Godzilla, but there's not enough real dinosaurs. Stan Winston. Time. You're calling. Whew. All right. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I meant to say. 
I don't think he's got it. <laughs> All right. All right. So I'm ready. I'm ready. Start in three, two, one. All right. I saw Caddyshack for the first time. Yeah. Right. Usually I don't like movies like this, and I think it's because Caddyshack was the first kind of good broad comedy to have like. Hmm. In what way? It's like now, to have. It came out after Animal House, though. Well, okay. I have seen Animal House. But I mean, like, think of all the comedies like Caddyshack that have come out. Oh, sure. Like, uh, which, you know, focuses on a job or is uh, is about, like, a whole bunch of comedians, like, playing the same parts. And... What about this just... movie set it out, set it apart? Because most of the characters are likable. Yeah. I mean, we care about them to a certain degree. I, the one exception is probably Rod, Rodney Dangerfield's well, character. He, well, he he's like he's like almost the... as repulsive as, as Ted Knight's character, but he's more fun to watch. That's the thing. Yeah, yes. I mean, he does come in and basically insult everyone, which and that, Ted Knight does. And, but Ted Knight is more of a jerk. Rodney yeah, Dangerfield, you're laughing. Yeah. Hey, Ted, free drinks for everybody. We're gonna get laid. <laughs> which is the and most that line, random yeah. thing ever, right? Funny line, but apropos of nothing, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Yay!" You know what it was? <laughs> they had to end the movie somehow. Yeah, but uh, there is like a good theme running through this film. Like, uh, think about uh, Noonan, his and uh, Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. and even the ground, the the Gopher. Yeah, they're all undermining this country club in some yeah. way mm-hmm. and it's them like the uh, one who's the it, most upstanding character is probably bill murray he's the one doing trying to get the gopher he's, yeah and, 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 <laughs> yeah he's trying to do something uh and you know he his scenes provide a great amount of you know just like a break from all the uh the other stuff where you just yeah. get to see him be silly uh lots of comedians running around doing funny stuff uh yeah i'm glad i saw it time I'm alright. Don't worry about me. All right, that's enough. Sorry. Right. We can't the, sing Kenny too much. Kenny Loggins can get in my head free. I'm alright. All right. All right, so. That is, a, that is a weirdly catchy song. It is, isn't it? Okay. okay. Uh, your turn. Go. Uh, Witness for the Prosecution. Have you ever heard of this movie? That sounds familiar. It is a Billy Wilder adaptation of an Agatha Christie play. Uh, it stars uh, Sir Charles Lawton and uh, Tyrone Power and Marlene Dietrich. That oh. is a cool name, Tyrone Power. <laughs> it's Not out. his real name, is it? <laughs> I don't know. That would be. I should look that up. But um, when you go with this movie, you know it's based on Ag- Agatha Christie, so it's you know a murder mystery, uh, a whodunit. Um, the thing about this movie that's so enjoyable, it's not even so much the plot, it's more, even though, yeah, it is, you do focus on the story, which involves this guy who is accused of killing, like, this old woman who he became friendly with, um, but it's really Charles Lawton's show, you know, Mm. and, uh, you know, and he's joined here and there by Marlene Dietrich, and these two characters, these two actors are giants, uh, Tyrone Power isn't quite a giant, uh, you know, he's good, Right. But I feel like somebody else could have played his role better. I think William Holden was originally offered the lead oh, role. Yeah, that would have that would have solved your you know, problem right there. Yeah, I mean he doesn't really have as well cool of a name, but still. Yeah. Um. The great thing though is Charles Lawton. He plays this character named Sir Wilfred, who's the barrister, and he's uh, a bothersome, craggly old sod. He's like this guy who. <laughs> I assume that's the movie, from the script. Well, I kind of made that. Up. He he's just gotten back from having a heart attack. 
uh, when this case happens. Oh. You know, and he's he's supposed to be very weak, but, you know, that's not going to stop him from drinking his brandy, smoking his cigars. And throughout the movie, he keeps having to basically wrestle with, like, uh, this nurse who's trying to tell him, Well, Fred, you have to rest. You can't drink this case. And Charles Lawton's <laughs> like, No, shut up. I agree you. So, Charles Lawton is really great in this movie. He's worth watching, if nothing else. Really fun murder mystery. Not great, but Time. fun. Okay. Yeah. Ah, fun. Yes, let's have fun. Let's have fun in our lives. Drink brandy. <laughs> and you have fun in your lives, people, while we continue the two-minute movie mile. All right. In three, two... I'm curious if you've seen this. OSS 117. Cairo Nest of Spies. I have not, but I've heard of it. This stars Jean Dujardin. Yes. Uh, it's a French comedy. Uh, it's which, a spy comedy. It's a spy comedy, yeah. that takes It takes place in the 1960s, and it looks awesome like yeah. in the 1960s. As soon as Jean Dujardin... Duhardin, I think. Let's call him Dijon Honey Mustard. Jean Duhardin. <laughs> as soon as he steps on onto the screen, I'm like, I could swear he is the French Chris Evans. There's something about huh. his jaw, and there's something about his smile, hmm. uh, and they look so similar, even though, like... He's got the bigger nose. Well, all right, I'm just saying. <laughs> but it's not, it's not so what, personal. What, so all right, so this... Funny? Yes, this movie is funny. Uh, the great thing is is that it's actually a good spy movie. Okay. It, you could kind of mistake it for a Bond movie until the comedy starts to seep in, and the comedy's funny. Yeah. Uh, the thing I love about this is the is the character. Okay. Uh, he is this... Uh, now, we should say there actually have been two OSS movies. Really? Yeah, I think there's another one. And actually, the guy who directed this ended up making the artist with Dujardin got the Oscars. Oh, that's cool. I'll yeah. have to check out that other one. Mm -hmm. uh, the main character, his code name is OSS117. Yeah. And he's, he, is like, he is a good spy, but unlike James Bond, he's not nearly as charming as he thinks he is. Oh, okay. So he ends up committing all these different faux pas and uh, just revolting people around him. So he's in that <laughs> middle ground between James Bond and Archer. Like... Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. Is that some, an interesting comparison? He's somewhere in that continuum. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> And he just does he's like competent, but he's kind of a and jerk. it's it's so different from like an American comedy where if America did a spy comedy, he would just be like an incompetent boob. Yeah. But there's a great he's in the great middle ground between those two things. It's uh, subtitled, but it's still uh, a lot of funny. You want to yeah, it's awesome. Yes, the director, by the way, is named Michael Hazanifvicius. Fuck, I forgot. <laughs> he has a very unpronounceable name. Gazuntite. Thank you. And now he's an Oscar winner, so good for him. Yeah. Serves you right, Jack. Yeah. All right. Ready. Go. Roman Holiday. Uh, Gregory Peck. Gregor Gregory Peck. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're doing imitation of Matt Sloan doing Gregory Peck. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's an easy voice to do. Um, and so, Audrey Hepburn. Yes. Both of them together on the screen in real Roman locations. Here's what was cool about this movie for me. Gregory Peck... What I'd said about this in my review is that usually when I see this actor in a movie, he's very formidable. He's somebody who, you know, he comes off as kind of upstanding and fine, but I don't usually see him as a very charming actor. You know, he's usually somebody who's like, I'm going to purvey justice here today. Or like in Guns of Navarone, where he... Yeah, or, I, I he, mean... He doesn't, have, he, he doesn't have much charm. Yeah, in this movie, he maybe it's because he was playing off of Audrey Hepburn, who 
you know, she's a movie star in Cats. Yeah, she's she can so make anyone charming. look charming standing yeah, next to her. Yeah, and Gregory Peck was very charming in this movie. He was actually very funny. Um, you know, what we get in this movie is, you know, a princess, you know, doesn't want to do her duties. She escapes into the city. In a way, it has the setup of, like, a Disney movie. Yeah. You know, if you see, like, in a, that little section of Aladdin where Jasmine escapes... Yeah, know, and but, uh, but, and so many so many movies with princesses have done that. Yeah, and so in a way, this is like kind of like taking a romantic comedy concept with a fairy tale, and it really and it works really well. It works because, you know, in a lot of romantic comedies, what I don't like about them is that you know the characters are just so unlikable. Here, you know, they're not the contrivances aren't really that great. I mean, they you know there is the kind of sort of lie that's like you know Gregory Peck finds out oh this is the princess I got to get the scoop for he my got, story. yeah he's a he's a newspaper man yeah um but they genuinely like each other by the end um and even though you know they probably can't stay together you know there's just this good feeling of hey we took a yeah, vacation yeah a good realistic let's have a ending. realistic time together yeah uh, real hollywood romance all right time <sighs> i have not seen roman holiday yet yes i uh, i know we've probably both seen the welcome to the basement so well, if we start talking about other people's shows on our show, gonna, <laughs> we'll be here all night. All we'll be is just a bibliography. Yes. <laughs> all, all right. right. Hold on a moment. Let me just uh, loading up my thing right here. Um. um okay. Uh, go. Okay, I saw Groundhog Day again. Like, oh. I I'd okay. seen like another so many, Bill Murray movie. Yeah, I'd seen like I saw. I had seen Caddyshack and I'd heard like a ton of stuff about Groundhog Day again. So Have that, you ever seen it? Yeah, I've seen Groundhog okay. Day, and I it's just felt like, and me, it was, it's it's like when you see something and you're like, oh yeah, that was a good movie. I should watch that again. That's what I did. And there's a little more I got from it this time. Uh, okay. It's what is it, it about it, this movie that changed for you? Well, I think I saw a little bit more of a of a philo philosophical underpinning to everything. Right. People have talked a lot about the, the philosophical implications of Bill Murray's predicament in Groundhog Day. Yeah, th there's almost kind of like I think Harold Ramis was actually a Buddhist, so maybe a little bit of that seeped in the movie somehow. Maybe, but you can get a lot of different interpretations. It kind of reminded me. Have you ever read the book Siddhartha? Um, Herman Hesse? No. Well, it's about this guy named Siddhartha who go, who basically does everything in his that you can do in life. He 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 becomes like a monk. He is really wealthy. He does like a whole bunch of other stuff, and through it he gains enlightenment. And that's basically what Bill Murray does. He does everything possible within the span of a day, and who who knows how long he's there. And that's how he achieves a sort of enlightenment. He yeah. starts out this very callous, uh, sarcastic man. And just, like, through sheer ex exhaustion and through killing himself and doing all this different and stuff. And Andy McDowell. Yeah, Andy McDowell. Uh, so there's a bit of a romantic angle there. Right, and then in the end he says, whatever happens for the rest of my life, I'm happy now. Which is a great takeaway for yeah. anybody. Yeah, you know. It's, it's, you know, your life, you know, you may not be living the same day over and over again, but if you can say, no matter what happens in the future, I'm happy now, that's a great lesson. Yeah, it's funny because Bill Murray's character in he did the movie called Broken Flowers, and he basically says the same thing at the end of that movie. Oh, one more thing. I think I noticed like a big bit of a problem. It takes place in February in the Northern Hemisphere. How is it light at six a.m. in February? Mm. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Time. Good nitpick. Little nitpick. And I say to you again, you need to see Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, I know. It's it's like Groundhog's Day. Don't only... rush me. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All right. 
All right. Uh, sorry, I gotta get to work. Go. Um, a deadly adoption. Okay. Uh, now this, <laughs> I don't watch that many of them, but I watched a TV movie on the Lifetime Network. How is it that I know of this title? You've probably seen the trailer or seen commercials for it. All right, hold this, on. Let me let me ask you a question before we do this. Why are you mentioning this film here? Because it stars Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. Okay. <laughs> Go so on. So here's the deal. Um, I think Will Ferrell and uh, his company and Adam McKay, who does a lot of his movies, they decided that they were going to make a Lifetime movie on the Lifetime Network. Like in, not and like what the I think the idea was that, um, you know, it's not something you see every day. It's a deadpan, kind of de- serious, but. Almost dramatic take on Lifetime movies of the week. Like, I talked to Corey, and, you know, she's seen a lot of Lifetime movies. She said that this has practically the exact same plot as another Lifetime movie, where it's, like, about, like, a writer and his wife, and they want to have a baby, so they bring it. So this woman comes in their lives who is, quote, pregnant, and um, she's not who she appears to be. Um, Here's the thing about this movie. It's almost like an experiment in, like deadpan comedy it's basically attacking the tropes of a lifetime movie um it's a very strange entertaining beast like they're really delivering earnest dialogue and what i liked about it is this think about like one of the sharknado movies where celebrities pop up and they know oh i'm just here having fun i'm collecting a paycheck Farrell and Wig commit to this. They make it look like a real Lifetime movie, if you didn't know any better. The thing is that they're actually better actors than a Lifetime movie usually deserves. Wow. And I was kind of entertained by this movie. Will I watch it again? No. But it's being serious, and it... Time. (sighs) Alright, this is my last movie. Then you're just going to have to marathon it, Jack. Do it. Do it for the children. I'll have to be like... What's his name? Lou Zamparelli or whatever his name is. Lift this beam over your head, Jack. <laughs> okay, ready, set, go. All right, Slither. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, directed by James Gunn. Have who, you seen whenever this? I see his name, I always think of uh, the other Gunn. <laughs> Sean Gunn? No, Tim Gunn. Yeah, they're not related. I know. <laughs> uh, but horror movie about a meteor that hits uh, near a town and yeah. infects a guy, and he decides to... And he starts to impregnate women to give birth to little worms. Yeah. Which crawl in your mouth and take control of your brain. Yeah, I, that scene, that stuck with me, man. Where, like, they juxtapose, like, Michael Rooker, yeah. you know, first injecting, like, all of his little, you know, slugs into the girl with, like, a square dance. <laughs> yes. That, that really freaked me out. And, yeah, there's some genuinely disgusting really good, stuff in this movie. Yeah, really good body horror. Yeah, this is, like... What's great about the what I like about the movie, it's not a great movie, but James Gunn came from trauma movies, and he oh. basically made. I feel like Slither is a trauma movie, but with a better budget and better actors. It's 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 the typical idea for a trauma movie, except given uh, so, some really good treatment, good yeah. actors, you have, uh, like, good Nathan, direction, you have Nathan good Fillion. script. Yeah, Nathan Fillion, Fillion, who can't get any nicer. Uh, <laughs> That's and that's true. a great thing about the characters because no one's a real asshole in this movie. Yeah. Uh, the only like the, the only person who comes close to being an asshole is a mayor, but you forgive him because he's funny <laughs> yeah. and like really funny. Uh, mm-hmm. 
And even Michael Rooker's not completely unsympathetic because he makes choices like he's about to impregnate his wife and he decides not to do it. So mm. he impregnates another woman instead. Yeah. And he's still kind of in love with her. And, uh, you know, you, you really can't feel you feel kind of bad for him. Mm. But uh, still really enjoyable. Uh, body humor is great. Some good gore uh, and just fun for a horror movie. What, yeah. You have thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I like the movie a good bit. Uh, it's not great, but it did the work done in YouTube time. All right. Uh, you you want... sound exhausted. Well, no, no, I'm fine. It's just a hot day out there, and even with the AC on... Quit it's... whining. All right. So, how many movies do you have left? Uh, I can't even count. Good. Let's get started. Go. All right. The Oxbow Incident. You ever hear yeah. of this movie? That's Henry Fonda, right? Um, yeah, Henry Fonda in, uh, one of his great roles, I think, or he at least thought so. Um, this is a very, uh, you know what I loved about this movie when I wrote my review? Most Westerns that you see, the characters are successful at the end. They've, they've kind right. of achieved something. Very yeah, positive. Usually when you watch it, it's kind of positive. Like, even, even see, in like, it... the stagecoach going through the mountains, the Indians chasing them, they'll kill the Indians. You know, the, gun, escape. The, the gunfight will happen. Things will be okay. Even in Leone Westerns, it's, you're successful at something. Yeah, yeah. This is a Western about failure. The characters kind of fail at, at life. life. Yeah, basically, because they, this person is presumed dead. Or actually, this, you know, this character who's like a farmer is presumed to be killed. Um, so this posse is rounded up to go find uh, the killers. And they also stole some cattle, supposedly. They find these men, and you know the men deny that they did it. And but the problem is the sheriff isn't there with the posse, so this group is kind of taking it upon themselves to enact justice to hang these people. Right. Um, and so you get this very interesting take on, uh, you know, injustice. And Henry Fonda's character is interesting because he's kind of a badass. He starts off the movie getting into a bar fight, and like the other, ca- like his friend just basically says, eh, "He just needed to have a fight uh, <laughs> to function." Um, the movie's pretty short; it's seventy-five minutes, but it gets done everything that it needs to. Um, what matters most is that you know, under the wrong circumstances, you know, such a thing as like a bill of sale, for example, you know, anyone can get it yeah. in the West. You know, what is a good man in this world? That's basically the question being asked. And it's really provocative. It's unlike any Western All right, cool. Yeah. Ready for your second movie? Pretty dark. Take um, a deep breath. Go. The Turin Horse. The Turin Horse. Turin. T U R I N. Like the city in Italy? I guess. All right, okay. so tell me about it. Oh, God, this may. All right. <laughs> All right, what's it about? Um, well, it starts off with a kind of narration. That explains about a famous story, supposedly, where Frederick Nietzsche uh, stopped a a horse from being whipped, uh, like in a in a court or something. Okay, and, so what does this have to do with that? Well, the horse is, you know, they don't know what happened to the horse in legend. So the horse is we. The movie is about what happened to the horse, and the horse is given to these two farmers, this man and his daughter, and you're spending two and a half hours. Watching, like, over the course of five days, like, running out of resources and just watching them get water, cook potatoes, sleep, put on clothes, and the horse dying. 
because the horse stops eating. This movie moves at a snail's pace. Here's why I watched this movie. Um, I saw a film. This is by a director named Bellatar, which right. sounds like a vampire, doesn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> now, Bellatar previously made a movie, which I watched last summer, called Satan Tango, which is kind of famous because it's seven and a half hours long and has very languidly paced tra- long shots. And I actually kind of like that movie a lot. But this movie, I guess visually, it's beautiful. Like, there are shots in this movie that last, on average, like five minutes each. And you're watching nothing really happening. You're watching, like, the rituals of these people kind of fading away. And this is kind of what makes me feel stupid. I feel like I'm not getting it. <laughs> Critics loved this movie. They thought it was, like, a poetic, meditative masterpiece. And... Uh, I'm sorry, I just didn't get it. Time. Uh, that sounds arduous. It's an art house. Well, yeah, I remember, Cor- just as a side note, Corey was in the room with me while I was watching it, and she just sometimes, she wasn't watching it, but she would turn occasionally and be like, What are you watching? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, a Frederick Nietzsche movie sounds more interesting, doesn't it? I'd say so. Jeez. All right, next one. Go. All right. This is a horror movie. Well, sort of a horror. It's more like a thriller. It's called Special Effects. Now, this is a movie from the mid-80s. It's kind of a serious parody, if that makes any sense, of what Brian De Palma used to do. Like, these sort of slasher movies. Um, It's, like, about uh, this uh, prostitute. No, she's she's kind of a prostitute, but she... um, meets, like, this sleazy filmmaker, played by Eric Bogosian... And the filmmaker decide, like is filming her, unbeknownst to her, while they're having a sex act. And she finds that out, and he kills her. Um, but what happens is, uh, he decides, uh, instead of trying to hide things, instead of going underground, I'm going to make a movie about this girl. And I'm going to recast her with somebody who looks just like her, and the guy who was actually the girl's husband in real life. This doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> no. Um, Wait. All right. Keep going. <laughs> I know. It sounds implausible, and it kind of is. But um, Eric Bogosian is the reason to see it. He plays like this nasty, brutal director. Um, he kind of plays it over the top, but but it's not in a way where he's seen chewing. Um, he's there to be the best actor he can be. The other actors around him kind of suck. Um, it's not a very good movie, but it has some interesting stuff to it. Um, you know, I think the problem is that this director is Larry Cohen. He did, like, the Maniac Cop series. Um, (laughs) he's a little bit too obvious with his satire. I kind of felt like watching it. Uh, Or not obvious enough. It's kind of like, hey, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm gonna make a movie about murder. And, you know, I'm going to rip off a lot of stuff with Hitchcock and Peeping Tom. Yeah, I mean, when your satire is too obvious, it, it's like explaining the joke. Yeah. Time. Uh, give me a second. <sighs> I got the vapors. <laughs> By the way, we're on iTunes. Subscribe and comment to us and leave a rating. <laughs> yeah, sure. Put that in there. Why don't you? Okay. All right. Ready, set, go. Uh, Harvey. Okay. The movie Harvey. Uh, you know, you familiar with this one? Yeah, the one uh, with the concept, Jimmy Stewart. And... Jimmy Stewart has a six-foot uh, rabbit uh, friend, which is invisible. Invisible. Um, well, is it? Yes. I give you a look. Um, it's also interesting in the movie. It's referred to as uh, a puka, 
which is apparently like, and, that, and there's a scene where like a guy actually looks in a dictionary to read the definition of a puka as being like this fantasy character who some people can see and others can't. Uh, almost, I guess, like Pan in Pan's Labyrinth or something. Okay. Um, here's what's interesting about this movie. Um, Jimmy Stewart, you know, he's the reason to see this, and he plays this guy named Elwood Dowd. And he's basically the nicest guy you've ever seen in a movie. Mm-hmm. He's just so... And he actually uses the word pleasant at one point. <laughs> the thing about Elwood Dowd is that he doesn't really have a job, even though he gives people, like, his business card. He, he <laughs> keeps meeting people, and he's just very nice. He's like, oh, nice, nice to meet you. Here's my card. We, we should have dinner later in the week, you know. <laughs> and, um... But he doesn't really work. He just goes to, like, the local bar with Harvey... And, you know, and he orders martinis, and yet, it's interesting because, uh, like, he don't, he doesn't really act like you see most drunks. He's a very pleasant guy, but maybe, what I thought is that, like, the booze kind of keeps him level. Like, huh. you know, and of course the movie, the main plot is, like, his family's trying to commit him to an asylum. Remember, kids, booze will help you. Yes, but of course, wackiness ensues. The wrong family member gets committed because <laughs> sexism. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like a mission is try to get him back. But, you know, again, Jimmy Stewart, it's one of his best performances. Um, he commands the screen, even though he's very friendly. Time. Yeah. Um, I, I have more to say, but I, I just, I'll, just, I'll just go home. All right. <laughs> I, All right. I, I do old Jimmy Stewart. It's funny. I don't do young Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I do the Jimmy Stewart that Jim Carrey used to imitate. Oh man. <laughs> uh, let me just see what. Hold on. Let me just see what I have next up here. SoundCloud.com/slash/WagesOfCinema. <laughs> uh. Okay. All right. I got. All one. right. Next. Ready. Set. Go. Miami Connection. Yeah, I watched this with you. Yeah, we watched this for movie night. Yes, um, we were watching this because Riff Tracks is going to do a riff of this in September, right? That's that's a big part of it. Uh, I also just was curious to see this. I've heard a lot about this movie as kind of like one of not it's not up there with the room, but it's been kind of like a recent midnight movie fad. Uh, this movie is set in the eighties, as if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, it is a any, movie. Any movie with Miami in the title is from well, the 80s. Well, here's what's great about this movie. It, the guy who made it is not really a filmmaker. His name was Y.K. Kim. And Y.K. Kim used to run like a series of Taekwondo studios in Florida. So he was really a Taekwondo guy who decided, hey, I want to get into movies. So I guess he, he... It's very clear that most of the actors in his film are Taekwondo students. Yes, and, and that he is not really an actor himself. Oh, no, he's not an no. actor. Uh, uh, but here's the thing. It's a bad movie with a bad script and bad dialogue, <laughs> yes. but it's got good stunts and good action. It has good fighting. You can tell that they worked on the fighting. Um, there is a moment where the movie stops to just show them doing their Taekwondo training. Yeah. As if, and you know, they're commercial. speaking as a black belt in Taekwondo. They are good martial artists. They're, yeah. they're pretty awesome. Yeah. But again, I didn't need to see a 10 minute s- <laughs> scene in order to know that. No, I mean, I just, I think the movie's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a plot involving Coke deals and rock. And I roll think Coke, ninjas. De- I think Coke deals are entirely tertiary to this, to the script. Yeah. It kind of starts with that. And then becomes more about these, like this rock and roll band that's like 
hunt that's kind of gets 10 seconds rivalry. left let's finish it up all right um it's a meandering it's, script that doesn't go it's, anywhere it's a pleasurable movie though because there's an innocence to the whole enterprise yeah I they would just say went right. out to make a fun movie and i think they did it yeah i agree all right yeah it's not like it's not after last season <laughs> few movies are all right uh i am now i'm almost there Almost halfway through. No, no, no. Here's, um, well, I'm going to wait to talk about a couple movies in our main segment, just to give myself a break. Okay. Um, but I am, all right, so I basically have, all right, so I'm going to leave, here's, all right, I'm going to talk about a trilogy, so all give right. me six minutes. I'll give you three. No. No. That, One minute per movie. No. I can't get a minute to talk about, oh, are you kidding me? Come on, you can do it. All right, four minutes. All right, I'm doing a four. It's the Apu trilogy. The Apu trilogy. Go. All right. It seems like a crime to give so little time to a trilogy like this, which is kind of like the probably the crowning jewel of Indian cinema. From how much Indian cinema have you seen? Actually, not that much. I really haven't gotten that much into Bollywood yet because I've just how much time do I have to watch like three to four hour epics but um you, your favorite movie is fanny and alexander i know but <laughs> all right but the point is the apu trilogy is by a director named sadyajit ray um and for those of you who don't know this was a filmmaker who kurosawa once said that not having seen one of his movies is not like having seen the sun or the moon um <laughs> if you don't think that's high praise i don't know what to do for you so he made three movies involving this character named apu um, no first, Simpsons jokes, please. No. Thank you. Come again. Um, the first movie is called Pather Panchali. Um, this is like a neorealist movie. In fact, it was inspired by The Bicycle Thief. Um, what you get in this story is about the Ray family, no relation to the director, and it follows them really suffering in like trying to survive in like this kind of countryside uh, house that they have. Hard times have fallen on India. Hard times have fallen on India. Um, and you know, this little boy is growing up and, you know, not growing up, but you watch him in like over the course of maybe like a year or so as, you know, kind of, you know, he, he enjoys the wonder of life, but he's also witnessing a lot of tragedy. Uh, family members around him die. Uh, his mother is kind of like the central character in this one because she's trying to keep the family together while the father is out trying to get work. So it's and, like through his eyes, but the mother's the main character in a way. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of more like seeing like. Ooh, here's this. Ooh, here's that. Oh, now here's about the train going by. Now, now about the second movie. Okay, second movie uh, is when they they move to a city, and this is called Aparajito. This is the second movie. Um, it is this time uh, we still follow the boy growing up. This time, uh, you know, then he there's more tragedy. Uh, spoilers: uh, the father dies. Um, so if people are listening to this, hopefully he they dies trying to thwart it. a bicycle thief. <laughs> Yes. Um, and this one's interesting because the first two movies, it's almost like watching the Indian version of Boyhood, only yeah. better. Uh, the, the, the thing that reminded me of Boyhood is that when they changed the actor from when he's a little boy to when he's a teenager, the teenager playing up Pooh isn't that great. He's okay, but it's just kind of like uh, you're not quite up there to the level that the actress playing the mother is, who is a very naturalistic actress. She's really great as the mother. You're watching basically a son and a mother trying to 
hold together while the son is really trying to educate himself. He wants to go to school. He wants to get sciencey stuff in him. Um, so it's a good movie, not my favorite. Then we now, get about the, the world movie? of Apu. Um, this is like, to me, this is like an existential masterpiece. This is what I would call it. Now we go to when Apu is now in his 20s. Um, he's by himself. He maybe wants to be a writer. He wants to try and make himself some kind of great writer. He might make a fictionalized version of his novel, but that doesn't happen. Through a series of misunderstandings, and this is actually kind of... He becomes a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Almost. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, he um, he marries a girl kind of by accident at like a, his friend's cousin's wedding. and uh, So anyway, Whoops. he falls in love. Um, he has a son, but a tragedy ensues again. There's a lot of tragedy in these movies, but there's also a lot of hope. You're seeing a lot of humanity through these eyes. Roger Ebert talked about how you know this movie series showed a side of India nobody had ever seen before, and I agree. Um, go check out these movies. The first and third movies Time. are masterpieces. Ugh. Why did I give this the Daily Double? <laughs> I forgot about the Daily Double. I started that, and then we, I just stopped it. Yeah. God damn me. All right, Jack. <sighs> I'm done. You're done? I'm finished! All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get back to our New Year's List movies. Stay tuned. <laughs> 